This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Wayne Chang. And I'm Scott. Yay, we got a full house today. Awesome. It's about time. Cool. I'm glad that everybody's here. So this is, this is going to be a fun topic. Uh, in this episode, we're going to take a look at the Delkir, as well as the Cult of the Dragon Below. Uh, so uh, get ready for some nice cosmic horror and other terrible Craziness. Things. It's going to be crazy. Madness, it- chaos, entropy. So, um, so to start with, Keith, you've got an article that you read. You, you bleh, let me try that again. <laughs> you have an article that you wrote some time ago uh, on the Delkir and their cults, and that's on your website. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, or do you yeah, just want to kind of? One thing I'll say there, just because uh, you know, there's a couple points I cover there in some depth, uh, just that we may not touch on as much here. Uh, one of those specifically is a lot of people ask. Why would anyone join a cult of the dragon below? You know, what's the appeal? Uh, And that I explain in a lot of detail. Uh, And also uh, there's a whole thing on, again, sort of why did the Dalkir look the way they do? Uh, Why do they have the sort of powers that they do? And so those are things we'll we'll probably touch on in some degree, but but both are covered in in fair detail uh, on that post. Cool. Yeah, so check that out uh, if you want to delve a little bit deeper into those topics. So, um, you know, I think one of the easiest things that people try to start with when they talk about like Delkir and Zoriat and, you know, Cult of the Dragon Below is drawing, trying to draw comparisons and analogies and such to say Lovecraftian horror or cosmic horror. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of easy. It's something that you can grab onto and, and sort of run with. Um, but obviously there's more to it than just that. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you start off, I mean, let's, Let's go back to the original. We we're talking about Zoriat, the realm of madness. Now, obviously, Keith knows this as well as anybody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that this started with was when D&D introduced the Far Realms, um, mm-hmm. in originally in th- third edition. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is just an adapt- adaptation a little bit on that, adding some monsters, adding some unique flavor to that. And for those people who don't really know, you know, Zoriat was just basically, it is this realm of incomprehensible insanity of madness you view it and you go crazy and very much like the lovecraftian um horrors that we're experiencing the delkir that come from from there are from a place where there is no it is beyond the senses that your your brain can can fathom i definitely agree with that and The thing about Zoriat is, on the one hand, it is very much an adaptation of the Far Realm. And again, as Wayne was saying, you know, the the Far Realm is sort of the ultimate alien, unknowable, incomprehensible. Uh, I will say that Zoriat is still, where it does sort of fit beyond that into Eberron's cosmologies, it is, again, the sort of plane of madness uh, and it's sort of a counterpart to Dalcor. Dalcor is dream, and dream is sort of wild imagination, but there's still generally a shape to it. And the point of Zoriat is it's sort of, again, imagination, emotion, but completely wild, untamed, unknown. And so the point is, all sort of mortal creatures have a connection, 
that connection is too strong, it causes madness because too much perceiving Zoriad, again, it just doesn't uh, work sort of with, uh, with our reality. Uh, at the same time, it is the point that it is also a place that can give people inspiration. You know, some say that sort of artists can be inspired by madness. And so it's sort of a little touch of the same way that the Fury can be seen in a positive way and a negative way. Zoriat, we generally just say, oh, it's horrible and it's madness. But there still is the point that it can also give visions, insight, some, you know, a different outlook. And that's the main point of saying that psionic power, we generally draw on a connection to either Dalcor or Zoriat, saying that both of these are sort of where people tend to get that. And Dalcor tends to be the scion, you know, more focused, more controlled. Zoriat tends to be the wilder, where it's just yeah. this sort of uh, uncontrolled, unrestrained power. Um, but I'd also just like to say I'm an enormous Lovecraft fan. I've obviously done Cthulhu Bloom, The Doom Came to Atlantic City, Cthulhu Flux. And so obviously... Uh, you know, on top of the Far Realm, you know, Zoriat is inspired by that. It does draw on a lot of things. I will say that Eberron also does have the overlords of the Age of Demons, and that touches on that a bit as well, where those are these ancient, vast entities that can someday be released and sort of wreak havoc. Whereas, in a sense, the point of the Dalkir and Zoriat is we don't even know what they want or why they're here. That it's not even clear that you know, the Dalkir want to destroy us as much as just to change. Uh, you know, we can't even really understand their motives. And so I'm saying the overlords also fit into that puzzle of the overlords are the thing that if unleashed, they will just completely sort of wreak havoc upon the world. Right. And you make, you know, an interesting distinction regarding the plane of dreams and uh, Zoriat or Dalkor and Zoriat. And I I always saw the plane of dreams as a place that's sort of uh, constructive, right? You're right. you're creating constructs, you're uh, and things that are orderly. And and while dreams might seem chaotic, there's still a sort of logic to them. And in, in you, your, you like, fit them together. You know, you shape them with your thoughts, with your mind. And what we're saying is, Zoriat is the unimaginable. Uh, right. You know, it is what you can't conceive. Whereas with Dalcor, it is you shaping a reality based on what you imagine. And it's interesting because if we think about the planes and the relationship to the material plane, um, they, they can influence things such as war Absolutely. or, you know, climate and weather or whatever it might be. Um, and even right now, as we're talking about this being, you know, Zoriat being incomprehensible, it's incomprehensible even to me to understand how um, Zoriat touching the material plane uh, would affect the world of Eberron. Like it's it, the ideas are, could just be completely wild there. Maybe that's something we can talk about when we get into like GM advice. Sure. Um, but uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's intriguing as we talk about this more. Um, and, and that's not something and, I, I have not focused on before. Uh, and and one thing I touch on there, uh, both to Wayne's point about the far realms and about Eberron is Zoriad is also one of our primary sources of aberrations. Mm -hmm. And the point of that is saying that an aberration is something that is fundamentally unnatural, that basically just for whatever reason just does not belong in our world. Uh, and that is, again, sort of tied to that point of one of the basic ways that Zoriad affects the world is it creates aberrations. 
you know, where it bleeds through, you get things that just have no place in nature. Right, right. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, so Keith hit upon a really interesting point. I think um, sometimes people look at Zoria and the Delkir as this nightmarish madness and forces of destruction, but it's, it's like Keith said, it's actually complete opposite of that. It's nothing but creation. You look at the, mm-hmm. and we'll get into this, you look at what everyone that is native to Zoriad is capable of in the realm itself, it changes through creation. The, the, the Delkir changed everything through creation, never destruction. Right. Just incomprehensible creation. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and in a way, it's almost a little like the Traveler of the point is what they're really about is change. And that change may feel like destruction to us. But really, as far as we can tell, you know, that's just that's not their goal. It's a side effect of what they do, you know? Right, right. Wayne, what are your other thoughts? Well, just going back to the aberration thing, like my one of my favorite creatures to use, obviously, the Mind Flare and aberrations and, and when I play D&D. <clears throat> and having a basis, having a... Um, um, having somewhere where all these aberrations come from. And like mm-hmm. Keith said, aberrations have no place in mm-hmm. the world. They are mm-hmm. not natural. They are not whatever. They are born from this warping energy, this power, this madness from this realm, but it doesn't destroy it. It's not like you walk into this realm and you die. It, you walk into this realm and you are changed. You are forever right. changed. Just like when the Delkir came and they created um, the the Dolgrims and all those things, uh, when the mind flayers, their generals uh, or the their lieutenants came, you know they they took over things. When you look at a a Abolith and the the its mucus creates these different creatures. It is about that change, about about that. And <clears throat> if nothing else, and we're going to talk about Delkir in a sec, obviously, in nothing else, that constant change, that constant alteration to become from quote unquote normal to that aberrant thing mm-hmm. is the, I think is the, one of the biggest um, things that we're going to talk about when we talk about D, uh, GMing or DMing um, these things is that there's, there's that, that's, that's, it's, they're not here to destroy something. They're here to recreate it in the image that they want. We just think it's horrible. <laughs> and, and I think that's a very interesting point. Again, coming back to Dalcor of saying Dalcor is a sense a world that we change with our memories, with our thoughts. We shape it. Whereas in a sense, Zoriat changes us. You know, contact with it changes us. Right. Um, right. I'll, I'll throw out just a random detail because it doesn't really fit into our other uh, discussion points is that while there's differing views on this, the view I've always given is, in my opinion, uh, the Mind Flayers are essentially dolgaunts dolgrims these are what the dalkir made from goblins and hobgoblins uh i like to say that the mind flayers are actually what they made from the gith that basically eberron isn't the first world they've come to they've been to other worlds they made uh mind flayers from the gith and they did basically destroy the gith world And thus, for me, how the Gith fit in is they're now sort of scattered across the multiverse because, again, their world was destroyed. And the reason they hate Mind Flayers so much uh, is that basically it's this reflection of them. It's the weapon that destroyed their world. Uh, So it's a different approach, but it still maintains, you know, because this is what is all about. You know, Eberron is all about for me is keeping a lot of the sort of themes that we've had 
in D&D all along. The Gith and the Mind Flayers, you know, are constantly uh, feuding, but making it a different reason and saying it's because that's what they were. You know, that this right, is, right. is, uh, is them changed. Anyhow, that's just a thing. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, so, uh, any other thoughts regarding Zoriat and such before we move on? No, I'm probably get sued. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the Delkir themselves. Then um, we know that we know that they're uh, that they're trapped in Kyber. Um, but I think an important piece of that is the fact that they're not actually powerless. It's not like the overlords who are bound and powerless. The Delkir are still moving about and they're still active. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that, I guess, and, and, and understanding, you know, how they work, what's their motives, uh, and, uh, and how are they still active? What kind of things are they still able to do? Well, I think you hit the sort of critical point of that the, um, the overlords, we very much sort of say they are completely passive. They are completely bound. They have no direct ability to influence things and, you know, they're essentially slumbering. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it comes back to essentially in that they are very much like the classic depiction of Cthulhu. You know, they can't do anything directly. They might be able to influence people mentally. The Dalkir are basically still active, moving around, doing things. And one of the basic questions that's even put forward is they don't seem in that big desperate to get out is do they even really care, you know, or do they feel they are bound or are they perfectly content doing what they're doing? Um, so it's very much they can't come to the surface, but they are still active below. Right. Wayne? Wayne? Uh, Sorry, I was hitting my mute button accidentally. <laughs> well, one, of, one of the things about the Dalkir um, is is exactly that, like, like Keith just brought it up, is that they are not passive. They, they're moving around underneath. They are doing something underneath, and no one's really gone down to check on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the overlords, we know they're passive, they're bound, and maybe they can send out some thoughts. The Dalkir are suspiciously quiet, and considering that their their motives are you know unknown to the players, um, and we'll talk a little about the GM side in a sec, but uh, later on. But they're completely unknown to the players, so you can say you can do or say anything you want with these things, and this the uh in you know when we talk a little bit of horror. Let's talk about that just for a sec. It's not. It's not that it's never the reveal that's that's scary. It's the anticipation getting up to there. So if you are using a, a Delkir, they're doing something. And if you're constantly mentioning to your players they're doing something, like let's say that Delkir is, is the main enemy here or the main villain of the story, if they're constantly doing something, and you're not gonna be able to figure out what it is, but they're constantly doing something, there's something to be concerned about. The Overlord's kind of like, yeah, I'm not really concerned. We just don't want them to get out. The Delkir are already out. But they're not trying, like you said, they're not trying to break out. That's so what the hell are they doing? Yeah, that's very much. It's it's the the overlords are to a much greater degree a binary thing. As long as they're bound, we don't really have to worry too much. And once they're out, it's terrible. Whereas the Dalkir are much more. What are they up to? You know, what are they doing uh, now? And as you said, that's sort of part of the plot. Is they're up to stuff. It just doesn't have to mean uh, them being released to do what they're doing. And that's not to say that 
everybody in the world knows about the Delcare anyway. Correct. Right. So it's, it's not like it's a thought that's that everybody's consciously thinking of, like, Oh, what are those don't care up to? They're just, they're behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> whether they're myth, uh, Scott, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of it, right? Is the Del Kier, the, 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 the key word for people is they're unknowable. It's just mm-hmm. a fact, even to their own cults and adherence, right? Their, their entire motive and is going to be unknowable. Um, and you should enjoy that because you, you can't make a mistake in a plot, if a Dalkir is involved, because right. you don't have to explain it. The Dalkir could easily let all of their minions die and suffer at the hands of the party, and that's the way it was supposed to vent, you know, play right. out, because the Dalkir needs to move the party forward for some strange reason. Right. Yeah, that's it's, a very, very distinct advantage, yeah. Yeah, and that's especially true compared to things like the Dreaming Dark or like things like that, where you can sort of be like, why don't they take vengeance on the players? Here, you know, yeah, the Dalkir do sort of work at that weird distance. So um, just just following up on this, you know, what we do want to say is, I mean, the point is the down here themselves are mysterious. They do, yeah. however, have both cults and, of course, their creations, the Mind Flayers, Beholders, uh, you know, Dolgrims or Gaunts. Uh, you know, there are creatures out there sort of doing things. You know, if you run into a Mind Flayer, there's a good chance he's connected to a Dalkir. Uh, it's just as, as Scott said, you know, you don't always necessarily know how his actions are advancing that agenda. Um, but basically, there is a lot of room. What I like about the Cults of the Dragon Below uh, and the Dalkir in this way is that they are a good starting villain because like the Order of the Emerald Claw, it's very easy to have them just doing something that is bad and you need to deal with it. And we don't need a lot of explanation. We don't need to sort of understand it. We just say, there's a cult running around murdering people. You better stop that. Right. Um, and long term, we then get into, but why? Or what was going on? But it's very easy to just sort of say, we need some bad guys. Let's have a cult of the dragon below. <laughs> You know, and uh, you don't have to have a, a deep explanation for them. Yeah, and, and and they're just as. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no 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 no. I was. Uh, I, I will say before we move because I you know that's an obvious point to move on to the cults. Uh, we do have a point on the Dalkir that's worth mentioning is that whole idea that each one of them, you know, the Dalkir that's in the ECS is a sort of baseline template, uh, right. and there's a certain number of them out there. Uh, but that we have certainly named some of them and are saying essentially these are the greatest among them. And so those, those are people like, you know, Kirzin, the Prince of Slime, you know, Orlosk, uh, Belashira, Lord of Eyes. And that the point is each one of them is sort of unique and has their own abilities. You know, Belashira is more associated with the Mind Flayers. Uh, Orlask is about slimes. Uh, no, excuse me, Orlask is the, the stone you know, person, uh, but that basically they, there is sort of a lot of room to pick what is, how does this plot tie to which Dalkir? Right. Yeah. It's like each one, uh, I was going to mention that earlier, that each one is sort of like its own artist with its own medium, so mm-hmm. to speak, or, or its own specialty. Absolutely. Uh, and, and like you said, with the templating, you know, or, or when you look at that baseline, based on the actual, um, you know, preference for whatever creature attributes, you can actually give them um, unique powers that, you know, are beyond any 
mechanical rules associated with those things. Like, uh, like we were talking before the show, before recording about, uh, for example, maybe they can see through everybody's eyes, right? Or, you know, things like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, things that are just so out there that, you know, defy the mechanics, you know? I, I just, uh, a perfect example to me, and this is slightly drifting into the DM side of things, but like with Belashira, you know, just saying, well, let, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that when we move on. Let's, let's stay okay. on focus here. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, um, yeah. And so, so talking about the cult of the dragon below, um, you know, even if you are diving into them as, as starting villains and such, uh, it's still that sort of like, why are they doing this? You know, like there might not be an obvious explanation and, and that could be sort of the, the gateway to the next part of the story. Um, but it's also that the cults of the dragon below are not singular, Right, they're all very diverse. They all have very unique um, goals or very, very specific things they they worship. They might not even necessarily worship anything that's aberrant. They might even be worshiping, say, a, a demon overlord or something to that effect as well. well um, and I think yeah. a big point there is they may not be worshiping anything. Uh, right. You know, one of the examples I give in in that other post is a guy who wakes up and thinks, "I am the reincarnation of Galifar." And it is my duty to bring the five nations together. And, you know, or essentially the example I think I gave was King Arthur. You know, I wake up thinking I'm King Arthur and I'm going to save the world. And I go out there and I see another guy and I'm like, you're Lancelot. And he's like, I am Lancelot. And they come together and they're knights and they're going to protect the world from uh, alien invaders, which turn out to be people influenced by the quarry. And my point is... They don't think that they're – they think they're a secret brotherhood of, of reincarnated heroes. Uh, so they're not actually worshipping anything. But the fact of the matter is they're crazy. You know, they right. are not. They're randomly running around murdering people because they believe that, that this thing is going on. And so right. we refer to them as a cult of the dragon below because they are a group of people, uh, you know, following this insane agenda. But they're not right. even technically a cult. I mean if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, socially, we just kind of pigeonhole them, or we meaning like the people of Eberron. People of Eberron just use the term them. to say any sort of group of people sort of following an insane, irrational agenda uh, right. driven by madness. Right. Wayne, you had some thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, when we mentioned the religions, you know, the cults of the dragon below are not one religion. So I, I think it's almost... I mean, we need to put a little disclaimer here saying that when we talk about cults of the dragon below, we're not talking that every single cult of the dragon when? below is worshiping the Dalkir. They may not even worship, like you said, they may not even worship the Dalkir. They may not even worship an aberration. Um, they might just be worshiping some sort of concept. Maybe they're being manip manipulated by a Dalkir, or maybe they're not, or maybe the DM won't decide that until the PCs kill all of them and realize that they weren't sacrificing babies. They were doing something else. Um, just as a as a misnomer, the other thing is is that the ones that are worshiping the Dalkir um, might have something different. So, and that's one of the things when we talk about because everyone has so many different enemies, so many different things. You really want to give those true quote unquote worshippers mm -hmm. of the Dalkir that flavor. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the right. flesh crafting and all that stuff, but you know, we're going to talk about aberrations and and whatnot as a GM side. But that's something that. I just want everybody to make sure they they're aware of that. We're not talking about every single cult of the Dragon Blow. We're talking about the ones specifically dedicated to the the Delk here, and those will feel a little bit different. Yeah. So touching on that for just one moment before we do leave them all behind, 
that's very much a point to me because that's the thing is to the answer of the question, why do people join the cults of the dragon below? The answer is often they don't choose to. They basically you're touched by madness and it makes sense to you. It's not like you think about it and say, do I want to be part of this over flame or do I want to be part of this cult? It's that, like I said, you wake up one day and you know that this is what you need to do. Uh, With that said, definitely there is the point that especially in the shadow marches, you do have sort of old, you know, long term cults, you know, cults that have lingered since the uh, the incursion, uh, the gibbering cults, followers specifically of the various Dalkir, and that those do sort of touch more on this sort of classic Lovecraftian, uh, you know, sort of Innsmouth sort of uh, scenario. Right, right. Scott? Yeah, um, yeah. so we, we kind of dipped into it at the beginning, and this will probably be a nice little uh, movement into the GM section, but when uh, we started talking about, you know, there's why would you be involved in this? So just peel back from the fantasy setting and go into our Earth and look at things like Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. You don't need reasons. You need charisma, which powerful cult leaders have, right? Mm-hmm. And people will do almost anything. You know, actually, they will do anything because they think they're in the right and they think they're on a path of enlightenment. And that is really all you need to make these things role play effectively. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that leads me to something else I'm going to mention in the GM section uh, later on. But uh, but yeah, you're right. That's a good segue into the GM's uh, part of the part of the topic. So why don't we go ahead and yeah, let's do that. Let's dive into that. Um, so a really cool thing about the Delk here and very similar to the overlords in, in many respects uh, is that they are masterminds, right? But it's really hard. We, we talked about this. It's really hard to understand what their motives are, how they operate, what their mindset is, what their outlook is. Um, they're thinking about things in ways that we could never ever comprehend. Right? So mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, Scott, that's something we can use as GMs to our advantage. It doesn't have to make sense at all. It could be complete bonkers, crazy chaos. And we can we can use that to keep the players on their toes um, to do things that just don't make sense. It's kind of liberating when you really think yeah. about it. Uh, I might be a cultist at the end of the show. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we could change their plans. We can uh, change their motives. Um, or maybe they never changed at all. Um, but it just seems that way, right? Yeah, and and to me, I mean, this comes back to uh, the point that you can go completely bonkers. Uh, I mean, there's sort of these three layers. You know, you can go completely bonkers, doesn't make any sense at all. You can have something that clearly makes sense. So in my novel, uh, City of Towers, there is a cult of the dragon below that is grabbing people with dragon marks and re- uh, removing their dragon marks through a bizarre uh, method. Right. You know, there's a mind flare removing people's dragon marks. Right. And the point is, why is he doing it? You know, what I'm saying is it's not something that makes no inherent sense. It's interesting. It's an experiment. He's clearly up to something. But within the course of the book, you never find out, is he working for someone else? Do they have a plan for these dragon marks? You know, that's not really important. Uh, but it is still something that's sort of like, okay, this feels like there is purpose to it. We just don't know what it is. Uh, and meanwhile, on the other end, going back to, as we said, the sort of long-established cults, you can also just have things like it's the harvest. You know, this is the time of the year when we kill strangers. 
or the stars are right and it's time for us to, you know, gather the hearts of five noble people. Uh, you know, it can be a thing very much that it makes sense to them because, again, once every 500 years we do this thing. Uh, But it still doesn't have to be part of a clearly defined long-term plan the way that many other groups generally should be. Right. I think one of the Uh, things that for here is that no matter what kind of villain you use, there should be some good motive. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. you can hide this under layers and layers and layers. Mm -hmm. Um, And each motive has an objective and a method. So when you're talking about Dalkir, the motive or the final objective could be completely insane. You could mix six, seven, 12 different plans, and you have the chance of just being like, I'm going to put this tenuous thing together, and it's going to work because it's that kind of insanity. But we have to also remember that these these creatures are incredibly smart. They mm. should have some sort of – there should be some sort of motive. They Their plans should be insane. I mean, the way that they go about it um, should be completely crazy. But to have that motive, it gives – because we cannot think – Right in this sense of madness, as a DM, you should still hold on to something there. And every time that the players do something, you can use that to be like, "Well, he thought of that earlier. He's so smart. I'm going to use that part of the plan." Oh, you just said something really, really smart and effective. That's part of the plan now, mm-hmm. and that's going to ultimately build up into this. And of course, the motive can change because they're allowed to change. But to have that gives you not an idea to give the players something to latch onto. But to give them pretend hope, <laughs> pretend hope that something's going to happen and those objectives can shift around um, and keep them on their toes. And and to me, I mean, it also comes back to a lot of times the point is they may have a clear objective, but that objective is just sort of hard for us uh, to grasp. But going back to um, the thought of that a lot of times what they're doing is changing something or creating something. And that for them, that may be the goal. So like one of the things that's been talked about a bunch, it's a crazy, you know, sort of campaign idea, but you could run with it, is the idea that dragon marks could actually be a creation of the Dalkir. They appeared a couple of thousand years ago. The dragons and the Lords of Dust were like, whoa, what the hell is going on? Uh, it would be entirely plausible to say the Dalkir basically came to, uh, to Eberron and said, huh, there's a prophecy here. That's interesting. Let's mess with it. And and so the point is the fact that this is what they're doing. Normally, if it was the Dreaming Dark, you'd say, well, they're doing this because it will save their world. If it's the Lords of Dust, they're doing it because it will release their uh, their overlords. With the Dalkir, they may be doing it because it will change the way the prophecy fundamentally works. And right. to them, that's interesting. Right, they're, you know, they're like hackers in, in many ways. Exactly, they're hackers, scientists, right. artists. You know, for right. them, change is a goal. You right. know, Scott, how do you um, how do you uh, see Delkir in your campaigns? So, uh, yeah, I use him as an ultimate mastermind with the definite plot of I'm going to make something interesting happen, mm-hmm. and then they flick their finger and they begin ripples. And so kind of everything we talked about, right? I'll have multiple cults that are active. One of them may or may not be directly related to some creations. And it's sort of a step process uh, that goes into it. And, the, and really the best thing you can do is, is in everything I do is I'll take the, 
get, get adventures from Call of Cthulhu and take a look at their scenarios and go with that. And that mm-hmm. will provide enough madness and uncertainty and why is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. And you can just blend some of those ideas into a standard adventuring and, you know, pulp action or uh, whatever else you're going for. And you can, you can create a sine wave of roller coaster madness for your players. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, one of the things also to me is that for me, the Dow here, uh, and apparently we have geese. Hi everyone. Uh, so, uh, is that suddenly the sound of geese comes over your mind, uh, is that you can use them as the primary focus of a campaign, trying to figure out what the long-term plot is. You can use Mm. them as, uh, again, as I said, it's very quick. You just need a crazy villain to fight, throw a cult in. Uh, but there is also the room in between, which is where I often like to use them of having a strange impact on the campaign while they're not the focus. So, uh, for example, you know, saying you fight a cult of Belashira, the uh, Lord of Eyes, you defeat them, you shut down their crazy plan, great. And then you move on, and then one of the players wakes up and they have an eye in the palm of their hand. And every now and then, you say, and when you look at that person, you know this thing about them. You know, sort of like a detect thoughts or a detect alignment, but it just happens. Mm-hmm. And you know this thing about the, these people. You can't control it. The game master decides what to tell you, when to tell you, but then it comes to the, well, what is this? You know, it can actually be really useful. It gives you clues about, you know, bad things going on, but why do you have it? Is Belashira getting information from it? Should you cut your hand off or should you just enjoy the fact that you have this extra source of information that's coming in? And, and so to me, that's part of where we say, you know, okay, you should be worried and do you know you can trust the information? Is it true? Or does it tell you that guy's a murderer and then it turns out they aren't? Uh, but it's sort of a way of sort of playing to that. On the one hand, this is cool. I've got a cool thing. And on the other hand, but wow, why do I have a cool thing and what is it for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I could even imagine doing something collaboratively with a player mm-hmm. where maybe at the beginning of the campaign, there's something weird about them and they don't know why. Mm-hmm. But that could be part of, you know, the story unfolding as time goes on. Yeah. Keith, you may want to run a uh, pre-crime. <laughs> really, well, really mess with everyone around them. But see, that's what I love is, is taking that particular example of have it actually tell them a couple really useful things. Right. And then have it tell them something else. You're like, okay, well, you know, the last two times it told me that guy wanted to kill us. It did. Now it's just <laughs> told me our buddy wants to kill us. Do I trust it? You know, is this friendly innkeeper actually trying to kill us? It's actually just completely sort of off subject, but people might be interested. Before Eberron, I worked on a text-based adventure MMO game. And uh, we had – you chose flaws for your characters. One of the flaws you could choose was to be paranoid. And the thing about being paranoid is it actually increased your perception. And basically, you had a better chance of noticing if someone was trying to pick your pocket, if someone was following you, if someone was eavesdropping on you, if people were having secret conversations. You had a better chance of noticing this, but then the computer would also randomly tell you these things. Hey, Christian just tried to pick your pocket. And well, maybe he did. You know, you're good at noticing that. Or maybe I'm just telling you this time. 
And and so it's the sort of once you get something that actually is useful, but if you rely on it too much, you know, then that's where you do become paranoid. Right. You know, uh, Scott, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about trappings in Savage Worlds, right? Right. Yeah. Imagining like a new arcane background of some sort or maybe just a trapping of one where for every power the character takes or learns, there's some deformity that is actually, um, um, you know, enabling that power. And it's tied to, say, the dragon below or, or a, a Delkir lord or something to that effect. Well, and that's where I just love that kind of thing because players love getting cool powers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's fun to sort of, again, not just make it this weird alien thing, but to say, you've got this cool thing you can do, but are you sure you want to, you know, right. make it feel like, ooh, this is a For creepy every choice. power you take, you're going to get some weird thing, yeah. you know. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you, well Christian right. mentioned this yeah, earlier. Was, I mean, is, he's. Now, what was that, Wayne? Oh, I was just saying, you, you did mention earlier, you know, maybe something that Delkiers do is is give or have these powers that are, are not gameable. They're not mechanically gameable. Right. And you can do that same thing to a player character when you're doing this. When, when you're messing with them, they're giving you or they're doing something completely alien. And it's like, well, how does this game work in game? Well, I'm not telling you um, because it's completely alien to any magic system or anything that you know. It's not alchemy. It's not um, artifice. It's not, you know, magic or psionics. It's completely alien. And you're going to leave the player sitting there scratching their head going, what are they doing? And it just, it, and like we said, it just messes with people because you're like, you know, you roll a couple of dice behind the, the screen and they're like, okay, well, this happened. You're like, what? What do we mean that happens? Just to, to give that kind of, um, just to give that alien, like we're talking about that alien feel to yeah. sort of bring that into the game and bring that into the way that you, you confront the players. Right. So I think just, just going very basic for a moment, again, you're a game master. How are these useful to you? You know, there are these number of basic different ways. I mean, on the one hand, you can just have the cult doing something dangerous. You know, they are kidnapping people and sacrificing them. They are, you know, I mean, you can go with very much the sort of classic cultist tropes. Uh, you know, they do this ritual every three years and the moons are in the right configuration. So they're going to do this thing. And so, I mean, very easy to just have them up to something that has to be stopped. Uh, you know, up from that, you have things like the they're stealing dragon marks. And the point there is it's not only a thing that's a concern, it's a thing that how are they even doing it? You know, that it right. is, again, something that is just outside the normal activity. Um, and, and so, like I said, you can have just a very straightforward, simple cultist trying to perform a ritual that you want to stop. You can have them trying to free the Dalkir. You know, that's an easy plot to go with. It's just that that's not actually the primary plot the way it is generally for the Lords of Dust. Uh, or again... You can have a more abstract, they are changing things, they are affecting things, why are they doing it? I've even used, uh, I ran a, a con game once where the basic of, the basis of the plot was such that um, the players were trying to retrieve an artifact that is supposed to lock one of the gates, or you know, permanently seal one of, the, one of the seals for a gate uh, to Zoriat. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they were... Um, they were collaborating with a half orc from the shadow marches. Uh, and she guides them back to the shadow marches to her clan and so on. And they go and try to stop the ritual. Mm -hmm. 
uh, from a rival uh, a rival clan, and uh, and it turns out in actuality that she had betrayed her own clan, and she actually hands over this artifact to the rival clan, and it's actually a key to unlock the seal. Right. And, and you know that's like one of the one of the core features of Eberron is that sense of betrayal, and that was that was a really cool way of doing that. You know? And and that's a it's a strong basis for that because again that comes to this sort of creepy madness of it's mm-hmm. not even sort of a oh she just decided to do it for money it's that she changed you know her mind has been changed and this makes sense to her now. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say just again as a thing that can be a point of plots the seals are a good point on that of there are seals that hold the Dalkir in Kyber. Uh, we don't specifically say what those seals are. They could be physical locations, uh, and that, you know, we say the gatekeepers guard them, but they could be physical locations. They could be items. You know, I've had a game where, uh, one of the players was a, a gatekeeper druid of the, you know, gatekeeper druid. Uh, and we just said he has an amulet and that is one of the seals. And that basically he's just got to keep it. You know, it's sort of, you're a big walking target because who knows what's going to be drawn by that. Um, and you know, people have thrown out ideas of, you know, you could say a bloodline is a particular seal, you know? So basically it's another way based on your campaign if you want to have people being hunted by a cult or people having to protect a thing, you know, part of it is you can decide the shape of a seal and then say that seal is something that is being targeted, is being threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, and, and and I think the other the other cool thing about Delkir, um, they're creators. Their creators are creatures, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, they created the the Dolgons and the Dolgrims and, and you know, uh, Mind Flayers and such. Um, and that's another sort of cool advantage is that you can create something completely new and different that's not even in the monster manual if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it kind of gives you a license to do something like that. Um, as you know, I know I've I've dabbled a little bit by mixing and matching powers and abilities and things like that with with aberrant creatures. I love aberrations, by the way. I'm a huge fan of aberrations. Um, and uh, have have any of you done anything to that effect as far as using leveraging them for you know introducing that new monster or that new race? Yes. I think any I think any aberration. If we're just talking about D anD D for a second, mm-hmm. any aberration makes a good monster. But like the change stuff, you don't have to go so extreme with those changes. You know, one of the things that um, the ECS says is you know Delkir prefer to let the minions fight on their behalf. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you can have minions after minions after minions. And you can just pick anything. Um, you can slap the new the aberration label on it and give it a slightly different power, um, you know. Or take, you know, take two creatures, shove them together, and they have powers of both. <clears throat> um, and it's the easiest way, I think, to um, just window dress a new a creature differently. You know, if everybody already knows what a gorgon does, but now it looks like this, and it does instead of a breath weapon it's a an aura or something like that like those kind of things um yeah i yeah sorry yeah i completely agree with that and and that is sort of the point that's one of the things i love doing when i use cults of the dragon below is is just sort of twisting things up and having a thing you think is familiar uh suddenly not be uh so for example just a con game 
I used to run as one shot uh, was the players are a group of Dakani goblins and they come to a village and there's a bunch of Alinar elves there, but the elves are actually part of Occult the Dragon Below and they're all sort of uh, carrying symbionts and such. So you run at the elf and he bites you with his tongue. Um, and it was a really fun thing just on the players of the, okay, they think they know what Valinar are, but suddenly this Valinar is attacking me with his tongue, you know, and wow, where did that come from? And like you said, that whole idea of take a Gorgon and people are like, oh, a Gorgon, we know what a Gorgon does. And then it spits fire at me, you know, and it's like, whoa, you know, and that's, that's a fun way of just sort of changing uh, from what people think they know. Uh, the one other thing I also uh, quickly wanted to mention is also just taking people like, uh, oh, Curzon, the Prince of Slime. Uh, mm. There's an article I wrote on him up on one of the, the uh, websites, I forget which. And, you know, one of the points we note there is, you know, some of his cultists sort of think anybody who has a cult is influenced by him. And, you know, you can totally do a sort of puppet master. People start getting the flu and everyone who's got the flu is doing weird stuff. Uh, and maybe you can get rid of it by just curing the flu, you know, or something like that. But the idea that he is mucus and anybody who's got a runny nose may actually be uh, be affected by him. That is beautifully gross and grossly beautiful all at once. <laughs> awesome. So, um, you know, I, I think the other thing about the cults of the dragon below is that um, they're not, they don't necessarily have to be evil per se, mm. just have strange motives. Um, like, yeah, of course they could be the type of cultists that are going around and like, you know, murdering people for rituals and such like, like that. But like you gave the example earlier about like, you know, we're, I'm King Arthur, you're Sir so-and-so and so on and so forth. Well, the, um, gibbering, the gibbering cults are one of my favorite examples of that. Mm -hmm. uh, where the, the basic concept of a gibbering cult is it is a family in the shadow marches who has a gibbering mouther in the basement. And, and whenever somebody gets to be 40 years old, they feed them to the gibbering mouther. And as far as they're concerned, if you listen to the mouther, you can hear them. They are still with it. They are talking to you. And of course, anyone who listens to the gibbering mouther is confused and goes crazy. You know, that's what gibbering mouthers do. But not them. They hear something. Right. And the point is, they're not they don't want to kill you and feed you to the gibbering mouther. You don't deserve it. You know, this is eternal life in the embrace of, uh, of the voices. And so the point is, yeah, they don't have to be evil, but they're creepy. You know, if you stop right. at the inn and discover they have this gibbering mouther in the basement, and then if you end up killing it, you've just destroyed their, you know, hundreds of years of their ancestors being part of this thing. Uh, and right. they're going to freak the heck out. Um, but yeah. So, yeah. So I, so I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, you look at the campaign uh, setting books and there's like domains associated with Cult of the Dragon Below. But what you really could do is you could you could expand that and simply say for each cult, pick a different set of domains. You know, maybe love Absolutely. and passion are, are some of those things or maybe, you know, whatever it might be that that is, you know, specific to the flavor of that particular cult. It doesn't have to be this universal thing for every single cult, right? No, I think that makes a great deal of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I love the idea of, you know, paladins of the cult, the dragon below. And again, you could prick, pick almost any oath just because it's all about what does your particular cult or character believe. Right, right. Exactly. But that's moving into player stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, do we have anything before we move into player stuff? Do we have anything regarding GMs that we want to touch on before moving on? Well, just really quickly in terms of fifth edition, um, you know, take a look at the DMG, look at the madness mechanic Mm -hmm. and how it works. Um, in, this was really brought out in the Out of the Abyss storyline, uh, mm-hmm. Rage of Demons storyline. And while that's not exactly Dalkir, I mean, that's more demons, um, it does kind of create, you know, with a little bit of work, I think you can really create something out of that um, that would encompass the Dalkir uh, or even encompass the Overlords. But that madness mechanic is extremely inconvenient. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's one of those things that's extremely bad, especially depending on when it gets, uh, when you get hit with it. And it's a, it's an interesting mechanic. It's it's not something you would use very often, but and it's a, it like I said, it's a purely mechanical thing. Yeah. There's lots of other ways to uh, encompass madness or create that mm-hmm. madness uh, mechanic. So it's just something to take a look at, just something to think about. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's I, other systems that have it too. I, I think that's a really good point because a lot of systems do have that. Like um, you know, the horror companion for Savage Worlds, for example, has a sanity system. Um, I know other systems that have corruption systems or madness systems and such. Um, so definitely, if you're if you're exploring other systems, yeah, look at what mechanics might exist that you might be able to employ. Another last thing I'd want to to jump on on while we're on the GM track too is essentially treasure items. Uh, is we haven't really talked about things like symbionts. Uh, And, you know, one of the things I like with cults is having them have treasures that, you know, you beat them up, you know, beating people up and taking their stuff is a, is a D and D classic trope. Uh, But having them have stuff that you're like, so again, you beat up the cult leader and the cult leader has a tongue worm which is a right. thing you attach to your tongue and then you can stab people with it and poison them. And it's like, okay, that is actually useful, but which one of you wants it? You <laughs> right. know? And that a lot of their stuff, again, is powerful and cool, but also weird stuff to be carrying around or in some cases attaching to your body. Yeah, it's going to um, draw attention if you put that on your body. <laughs> and... And similarly, you know, that also goes back to just the idea of even if you're not going there, I like giving them things that, again, are weird to use. Like, you know, give them a scrying, an orb of scrying or something. But first off, it's kind of squishy. And when you use it, what you start discovering is, you know, anytime you look at something through it, Belashira also looks at that thing. And there's a decent chance that cultists or aberrations or something are going to show up there. And, you know, not right. all the time, but sometimes. And it's just that, again, well, I've got this cool thing, but I got to bear in mind, every time I use it, something else is looking too, right. you know? And and I like just making their stuff interesting, I think. Or even, again, going to the novel, they took a dragon mark off a guy and put it in a bottle. And now you have a dragon mark in a bottle, and what are you going to do with it, right. <laughs> you know? Scott, you were going to say something? Oh, yeah, no, there's just the, the symbiotes are... You can get really, really cool, really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of ways you can go with that outside the book. I know the, the tongue yeah, thing definitely. is really odd. Yeah, I mean, there was a – when Everon came out, it was one of the first things I thought of. There's an old supplement for Rollmaster called Dark Space, and it has things like living spiders that become attached to your arm, and they have this chitinous blade that slides out. It's just these real disturbing features. Well, and a really simple thing to do if you just want a cool and different uh, – a symbiont is actually to use docents. 
Oh, yeah. And just have an organic docent that attaches to a person. So, you know, works just like a docent, but uh, but it's a, a living thing uh, as opposed to, you know, an orb that you plug into a thing. So, you know, you do have your little buddy who will tell you stuff, uh, but he's the eye that's attached to your throat, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, hey, Creepy. he can tell you when you're being scried on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, and I've never so, done that before, but now I really want to do it. So I might have to do that in my next game. I, I, you just gave me a whole ton of ideas in this conversation so far. So yeah, <laughs> okay. this, is, this is good stuff. So uh, so speaking of players with weird things attached to them, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what what should players keep in mind with regards to Cult of the Dragon Below or, or even the Delk here in general? Um, my top thing is as a player, even if you're familiar with the campaign setting and you're familiar with what Delkir are and you're familiar with Cult of the Dragon Below are, presume that you don't know or that your character doesn't know, right? Mm-hmm. Try to at least role play that because then, you know, l- embrace the 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 unknown horror, the thing that's slowly revealing or just the weird, crazy oddness of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it's important to give the GM breathing room so that they can create their own vision of a particular cult. Mm-hmm. You know, if we try to prescribe our assumptions to it, then that, that can be stifling in a lot of ways. I, I think it's a, it's a very good point that it is all too easy in something like D&D to see the world as numbers. And a lot of uh, what comes into embracing like a Lovecraftian story is to set the numbers aside and just think about what is happening. How weird is, you know, disturbing is this? Again, I've plugged, you know, I've stuck an eye onto my arm and it's talking to me at night, (laughs) you know, and and set aside that it tells me when I'm scrying. Just think about what is that like? You know, how do you really feel about it? And so, as you said, sort of really trying to imagine what this situation really is like for your character. Right. Letting, letting the characters be afraid and, and feeling uneasy and disturbed and, and such, uh, you know, that, that sort of downward spiral into madness, even, you know, embracing now, that. Definitely for me, one of the things I like to say is as a player, uh, is there's a lot of, of fun backgrounds for player characters, going through the cult of the dragon below uh Mm -hmm. the first you know you can just have a character who just believes something that is simply you know yes my character is just crazy uh so i mean like one of the examples you know is you could have a paladin uh who you know again believes that they will earn their passage to the veil of the inner sun by you know killing worthy enemies uh and essentially playing your divine sense as ooh, you know the voices are telling me this is something worth killing um and hey you're still a champion you're fighting bad things but can you make it a little creepy for the people around you because the voices are telling you things (laughs) right um or the other thing is i had a great time one of uh one campaign where i basically played a fighter who thought he was a paladin and he went around and acted just like a paladin. So I was going there being as heroic as I could. And there was an actual paladin in the group who I tried my best to out paladin. Uh, but also I was saying things like detecting, yeah, I sense evil in this man, which I know detect evil powers. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so, I mean, it can be kind of fun. And part of what's fun there is the other players are like, is he a paladin? I don't know. You know, and so from the straight up, you just have a character who has some crazy belief 
uh, to the idea of exploring, it can be interesting to actually be a, a follower of a literal established cult of the dragon below uh, that's just not evil, uh, you know, right. and you can still be doing good things. Uh, both of those can be a lot of fun to, you know, give you a lot of role-playing hooks to work right. with. Uh, Wayne, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things, and, and Keith mentioned this, uh, he mentioned both of the points, I just want to put them together. Mm-hmm. Number one is, when you're playing D&D, when you're playing Savage Worlds, obviously, um, you know, we're, we're big fans of both those games. The problem is, is that you do think of this as numbers, um, mm-hmm. you know, in D and D, you pretty much want to kill everything. I mean, they even give stats to de- the deities because you want we want to go and go, go kill them as, as players. But in Savage Worlds, you are competent. You are confident. You are this hero character. So even then, even if you don't give it stats, you're still going to want to try to beat it because you're like, well, I can still give the exploding dice. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The dangerous think, thing about Savage Worlds, I'll say though, is that so can the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing is, is that. And I, this almost goes back a little bit to the GM part is that take a look at some of the stories that play on the Cthulhu mythos um, or games that are specifically built for the Cthulhu mythos. Those players, those characters are not as competent. They're not as heroic. They run from a lot of things. I mean, you don't shoot Cthulhu in the right. face because, you know, and for the players, you have to play that. You have to try to play that aspect of this is a supernatural horror. This is a, sorry, an apex supernatural horror in a supernatural game. How do I, how do I use that and, and role play it well and still get to play my hero character that's a paladin that gets to smite things? I think that's also a really critical point for the game master, going back to both of those. If that's your campaign, you know, D&D players are coming in generally with the inherent assumption that they have a fair chance to beat anything, that the world is balanced. Whereas, you know, Call of Cthulhu is completely the opposite. That You are often not going to be able to just charge in and start shooting at a problem. And so I think it is worthwhile for the game master running that kind of campaign to say, be aware, there are things that you're going to be smart to run from. You know, don't assume that, uh, that every challenge you face is something you should fight to the death. Yeah, and um, and I'll say that that's certainly true for Savage Worlds in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, you have confident characters that have, you know, they have the wild die, they have, you know, bennies and so on, but so do the wild cards of the bad guys, right? And so anytime you go up against something, there's no encounterbalancing or anything like that in Savage Worlds. Right. It might be a situation where you're like, your best option is to run away. Um, and, you know, with that, there are, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's basically ways to tweak what, you know, what are called setting rules in Savage Worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So while, for example, there's certain things you can do with bennies or, you know, whatever, different mechanics and such, you can tweak setting rules to accommodate the type of story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you want something that's more horrific or more like you know gritty damage, there are ways to do that in the in these setting rules, so that the heroes aren't as um, they, they can't depend as easily on you know the metagame stuff like the bennies and right. such to re-roll and the wild die and stuff like that. Um, I, and and I, and I would encourage anybody doing to do the same thing, even with like say D and D. Look at what the rules are and and see if there's ways that you can tweak them a bit to give a little bit more of a um, foreboding feel and and the threat and the danger. 
And as long as we're talking about systems and horror, I have to, to give a shout out to my own role playing game, Phoenix Dawn Command, mm-hmm. uh, where that is very much uh, a sort of Lovecraftian action game. Uh, the world is being consumed by unknown horrors. A lot of what it is is it's high-intensity action, but it is also you need to understand these things. You need to find answers to these mysteries. Uh, and the point there is that actually, uh, you know, the things are not balanced. You very well might die, uh, but in Phoenix, death is actually how your character gets stronger. Uh, you die and eventually you return. Uh, having learned, you know, a lesson from, from what's going on there. And so there in Phoenix, the players know flat out from the start, yeah, these things may kill us, you know, and make sure that this is a situation that's worth dying for. Uh, because life, you can only come back seven times, you know, life is a resource. Um, and so that's one of the things I like about that is I can throw you, you know, there is the understanding that this is not a fair world. And that, you know, yes, if you run up against Cthulhu, he'll just kill you all. Um, but anyhow, moving on. Yeah. yeah, I think the other thing, too, for players is that um, there are, again, Savage Worlds, D&D has, has versions of flaws, for example. Uh, Savage Worlds has hindrances. Uh, but there are basically negative traits that you can take. And some of those can be things like you've got a weird quirk or maybe it's, you know, some sort of physical flaw or things like that. And I think that's a really cool way too to bring some of that into the game as well. Maybe something happens um, during the campaign that all of a sudden you've just got this flaw. Well, and, and whether it's during the campaign or at the start of the campaign, I think in both of these things, you talked before about the player, the game master talking to the player. And I think mm-hmm. that can go the other way as well. The game, you know, if you've got a cool idea as a player, you can say, hey, I've got this cool idea. I've got this eye and I don't know where it came from. Uh, and maybe over the course of the campaign, it grows more powerful and stuff happens. Right. Um, and and I, I very much think your point on like in 5e, you know, flaws and things like that can be tied to something where you're like, this is starting out, but I like the idea that it's going to get worse. Yeah. You know? Scott. Yeah, no, just you, I, you, this leads me to believe that I have a newfound use for the Savage Worlds mutation deck. Uh, oh my god why did right. i think of that <laughs> who makes it that's uh, just insert imagination right they make it is. <laughs> yeah. oh man i gotta go buy that now <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant very brilliant I'll, we'll put a link to those in the show notes in case anybody's curious about that excellent so, yeah so uh what else what else do we have for players anything at all I could come up with many, many stories of uh, how I think it's fun for players to be crazy. Uh, oh, yeah. But, but you know, I'll also just go – to me, this still comes to the basic things of uh, – especially in a horror campaign. Like if you know this is a flavor you want to have. It's not just the Dalkir is a random threat that's dropped in. But you want to have more of a Call of cthulhu feel. Uh, it really helps to develop the world around you. Uh, you know, basically, do you have family? Do you have friends? What is your attachment to the community? Uh, because basically, losing hit points is not scary. Losing a friend is scary, or having them go crazy. Uh, and sort of the more things you care about, the more that you can have legitimate fear in a way that is less, uh, it's harder to do when you were the only person at risk. 
I already hear all the uh, Wolverine players. I have no family. I have no friends. It's so often the truth. Uh, and, and again, you know, that's that's fine. But if this is what the, the flavor you're looking for, that's a great place to start. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I think that that kind of, we, we covered a lot with this. We did. Uh, wow. I'm actually impressed. Because we're so, uh, I think that that's just, you know. We are. We're that good. We're that good. Or at least that's what people are telling us, which makes us feel good. So uh, with that in mind, thank you all for listening. Um, and, uh, of course, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone, where you can find subscription links to our show. You can post comments on an episode, find links to our Google+, Twitter, and Facebook pages. And whatever option you prefer, let us know what you think of the show. Drop a review on iTunes if you'd like. And uh, that's pretty much it. Join us next month when uh, I think we, we talked about talking about uh, elves of Ebron. Is that, is, is that something me. that we still want to do? Some elves. All right. I believe so. All right. Excellent. Yeah, because we know they're not the traditional Tolkien elves, so that'll be a, a good topic. They're so, not? Uh, oh, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I hate <laughs> to drop that on. Yeah. <laughs> I blame Keith. <laughs> Yeah. um, Sorry about that, Wayne. (laughs) So uh, until then, uh, keep exploring.